Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Ben Falk, owner of Whole Systems Design, LLC, and author of the forthcoming book, The Resilient Farm and Homestead. He and I talk about his route to permaculture, the work of Whole Systems Design, the book, and his 10-acre farm where he performed the research for his writing. Along the way, we talk about how and where design happens, the design process, the role of active versus passive observation, and some of the 75 patterns that emerged from his work that make their way into the book. I had heard of Ben before, but wasn't really familiar with what he's been doing, though a friend of mine in the local permaculture community mentioned one time that he thinks highly of Ben's active research. And then after a listener suggested I contact him for this interview, with some others recommending him as a good guest. I find that Mr. Falk has a firm grasp of the design process and the experience necessary to make implementation happen because he works as a professional designer. He's also walking the road necessary to expand the community's knowledge of what does and doesn't work, while paying attention to the unique needs of someone living in the Northeastern United States. In the show notes, you'll find links to more of Ben's work, including his website and where to buy a copy of his book. If you enjoy this interview or any other episode of the show, please consider making a donation. You can do so by going to thepermaculturepodcast.com support. Now then, on to the interview with Ben Falk. I'll join you again afterwards with some more thoughts. Then, if you're ready, could you give us a little bit of your background and how you came to permaculture and your current work? I came to permaculture, I guess, through a variety of experiences. Hard to trace it directly, but I think spending a lot of time outdoors as a as a kid, going to summer camp, doing a lot of backpacking, canoeing trips, kind of you know wilderness wilderness travel types of experiences. That's really where I realized there was a world beyond the suburbs, you know, which is where I grew up. That there was this enormous living world to be a part of. But it wasn't until college that I realized, late in college, when I took a course with Dr. John Todd, that I could be part of that world in a real problem-solving way, more than just an enjoyment way. I actually was took a Knowles instructor's course, and before I found ecological design, I was wilderness trip leader and I wanted to basically make a living as an outdoor educator because I figured it was the best way to, the only way I knew of to make a living and, and still get to spend all the time I wanted to outdoors and in, you know, kind of in the great big wide open landscapes. So I was never really super into being an outdoor educator. I enjoyed it enough and did summers as a climbing trip instructor and and moving towards being a Knowles instructor. And then once I took John Todd's course in college, it kind of just a, a big light switched on and you know, we could address some of these depressing problems that I'd come across in my environmental studies major in undergrad school in very proactive, you know, problem-solving ways through design. And uh, his ecological design course was really, I think, the big turning point in that. I also took a permaculture course then. That was, this was about, I guess, about 15, 16 years ago now and read Mollison's designer's manual and everything that had made sense to me up to that point to some extent could be found in the first handful of chapters of that book. You know, I mean, I still haven't even read the whole book really page by page, but I read the first half maybe 10 times. So I, I suppose spending a lot of time outdoors kind of connected with the living world is why and how I came to, to permaculture, but it hasn't been a very direct route. I I suppose you could say. I don't know many people who did get on this road directly. It all seems to be a kind of circuitous path to get here through various trials and tribulations and different roads before we finally wind up on this one. Right. Sure. How long have you been running whole systems design, and what work have you been doing with that with your company? I've been running whole systems design for, I guess, about uh, 11 years is when it was really formed and as a business model. A little longer, I, I really conceptualized the need for this organization when I was in college doing my senior thesis work. I had done some timber framing and woodworking, all sorts of carpentry, and then had worked on the design end a little bit and had been around the construction of built systems enough to realize that there was too much of a separation between the design process and the 
and the implementation process. So realized we needed to, to have designers and makers be part of the same process together. So that's, that's what really was part of the inspiration for the business. Yeah, and that was about you know, 10 to 12 years ago. Our first project started about 10 years ago, I'd say. And uh, it's grown from there, mostly in Vermont, but across New England now. You said you did your undergrad with ecological studies or environmental studies? It was in environmental studies with a focus on ecological design because it's kind of a self-design major where I was at University of Vermont. Then I went to graduate school for landscape design and planning at the Conway School of Landscape Design. But that was a number of years after my undergraduate program. So then your undergrad work informed your viewpoint on needing to develop ecological design to be able to solve problems in the real world? And then was your landscape design and planning program something then that helped solidify that need to bring makers and designers together to solve larger problems? Yeah, definitely. But for me, the graduate program, I had already had it pretty clear in my mind what I was doing. You know, I didn't go to graduate school to figure out what to do or to learn a lot of new directions for my career, which is, is common and it's certainly common in that program. I, I knew I was already doing the work and I wanted to get more technical skills in drawing and plan production and design process. And so that it was a good program for that. And it was short, so I could get in and out and keep the projects going. I actually started school in architecture, started a master's of architecture program. That was going to last three years, and I quit after about two and a half months because I just realized there's no way I want to put my projects on hold for, for three years to do what were essentially going to be a lot of exercises. They weren't even real projects. Like at Conway, you actually get to do real projects for real clients. So I decided I didn't want to have any contrived, too many contrived exercises anyway and put off you know another bunch of years of my life after going to school in first grade and already delaying so much of what I could do in my life. So, yeah, the, the uh, graduate program was, was an opportunity to start doing some actual work that I hadn't done before, certain types of projects that they connect you with there, and, and you know, really focus on the plan, production, and design end, design process end, excuse me. It's easy to think of design as what we do in the office or in the studio, but I often tell students in our permaculture courses, design, design happens when you're out in the garden or you're planting trees, you're working with animals, or building something, what we do in the studio is, is put those solutions that we think up when we're actually engaged with the system, when we put those things on paper. But design, design, actually it's very hard to do design in a design studio. You really need to be out in the landscape or the environment that you're going to be working in to see the processes and the systems that you're then going to be putting onto paper and building solutions for? Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you're not you know, only when you're out engaged with the system, you see how the system works, for one, and then see what are solutions within the system, too. And so the studio, the office setting, is when those things can get communicated. But it's very hard. Really, it's nearly impossible to come across the solutions when you're not engaged directly with the living landscape building systems. Sometimes making plans and drawing overlays, for instance, is a great way to, to understand something. You can understand a lot about a site uh, or some things about a site only through, let's say, making maps that will bring out new patterns that are very actually hard to see in the landscape. That's an exception for the most part. Most of what we, I think, need to understand about how a system works and therefore its solutions within those systems come while you're weeding planting or mulching or cutting a timber or you know, making a path or building a stone wall or walking around, you know, looking at caterpillars making nests in your trees, which I'm doing right now. And, you know, all of these things that are constantly happening every moment of every day you know, in the system. Which goes back to that first principle of permaculture from David Holmgren, the idea of observe and interact seems to reinforce that you're one of several permaculture instructors who I've heard recently who brings up this idea of the importance of that observation and being out in our systems more and more. Yeah, definitely. But I would add that, um, and I read about this in our, in our book, which is coming out in the next week or two, that it's got to be also active observation. Passive observation has a role, but it's too easy to 
to have the passive aspect of observation comprise too heavy of a proportion of, of, I think, our engagement. The idea of, you know, observe before acting is key and foundational in permaculture. I think, at least the way I learned it, was that observation sounds a little more passive than it should be. For instance, you know, I did a lot of passive observation on the landscape on that now, or since my research farm where I've been for about almost 10 years now. And in the first few years, I didn't learn that much about the site because I wasn't really doing that much on the site. I was watching, walking around, looking at it with kind of ecologist eyes, but not applied ecologist eyes, not, you know, active restorationist eyes. I was walking around, seeing what was going on or trying to, but I wasn't, let's say, planting trees. And then two, three years in, I started planting trees. And I remember distinctly just in one week, I learned more about the soils of this site in a day, actually, of tree planting than I learned in three years of walking around because I started digging holes everywhere and, and actually seeing the soil in every different location. And, you know, it's just incredible how much I learned that week. You know, I've said ever since to myself and to others, you know, start planting trees even before you have a full plant. If you can afford to, you can just learn more by starting to dig holes around the site about certain aspects of the property than you than you could otherwise through through passive observation. Not that there's not a lot to extrapolate from the plants you see and the patterns you see about the soil, but there's no substitute for starting site development. Now, when I say that, it's not get on an excavator and do that level of somewhat irreversible change, but anything that can be mitigated um, or can help teach you a lot without causing irreversible change, planting, seeding, working, developing gardens, that's key to starting on. So I would just emphasize active participatory observation, not just passive observation as being key. That's something that I can certainly agree with, especially the idea of planting trees. I've been doing a very slow development of my own home site. And then finally this year, I was able to make an investment in quite a few woody perennials and some trees. And there I was out with my shovel going, okay, well, I've done the passive observation. I've done my paper design. I know where I want to put these things. And then I put the shovel to the ground, and it's just rock, rock, rock. Move five or ten feet, rock, rock, rock. Move again, perfect loam. And I dug a perfect hole there for a cherry tree. But the three or four places I tried before, I wouldn't have known if I hadn't gone down those eight inches or so into the soil before I just hit what seemed like an impermeable barrier of just rock and rubble. Right. And then if you had all a beautifully crafted master plan and planting plan in place, before you start digging, you'd have to go back and start changing all that because of what you learned in that first 20 minutes of, of digging holes. One of the things that I always remind people is be willing to improvise and adapt as you go because you never know what you're going to find. Yeah, absolutely. We always try to emphasize a really iterative process in planning. And it's interesting because, I mean, although I make most of my living as a planner, site designer, I am learning more every year the limits of that planning process and how inherently limiting it is. It carries a lot of power with it. It carries a lot of weight, but most of the time, too much weight. It's easy to just take paper too seriously and have too many decisions based on what is or isn't on a piece of paper. It can be great to guide overall decisions and to know starting points and know general steps. But if it's not coupled with the actives hands-on, that constantly changes what's on that paper, the master plan, the site designs, it can be very misleading and very dangerous. And I think about all the time and energy that someone can put into a design and then have something change that radically makes it different. An example that I have is that the flooding patterns where I live, most of my yard is a floodplain. And for years and years, my wife, when I moved to this site, she's like, she had lived here for several years and said, you know, this is what flooding's normally like. This is the worst that's ever happened. And then last year, more or less everything but our house was underwater. And it was only after driving out the road that we live on. I'm in a valley next to a stream. And that's when I realized, oh, well, 10 miles down the road, the Department of Natural Resources has been logging. I didn't know that, but it changed the water patterns enough that it affected my property. And that's one of those things about design and any given location. Something rather far away in our bioregion may have an impact on where we're living. Yeah, absolutely. 
I tend to think more and more every year I rely on the planning process as identifying general steps and starting points and trying to visualize a and not end, that's a bad word, a non-existent word really in, in permaculture, but an idealized vision of what a place might be in 10, 20, 50 years, but really using the planning process to identify starting points and letting those starting points then organically drive the actions following those starting points. When you say the planning process, are you looking at that from the work that you've done on the ground from a knowledge of permaculture or from your landscape design program? Like what pieces of the design process do you use when you're doing the landscape design? Well, it's informed by everything for me that I've done. I mean, all of my experiences too. I think there's nothing when I'm utilizing my quote-unquote planning process. I mean, it's embodying everything I, I think I know about the world to some extent, but, or it aims to, uh, but you know, the the process itself in a simplified description is, is nothing new. It's what the Conway School teaches and is, is what Ian McCarg really pioneered to some extent. I mean, the use of really going through site analysis, you know, what is happening on a site, what what's on a site, the site features, what's happening on a site, the site processes, you know, the things that are occurring over time, like wind and sun and shade and wildlife corridors, you know, not necessarily things that are there, but things that happen there. Uh, we tend to overemphasize site features rather than site processes. So that's, that's site analysis. You know, that's what, what is and what happens there, existing systems. And then um, you know, what might be able to happen there and what will nature help us to do there, schematic design, design scenarios. And then, okay, what should we actually do? a master plan, site designs, you know, phase one, phase two, phase three. So that's that's the process we go through. That's the order of things. But then let's say in the site analysis phase, we're using overlays of different features and processes, whether it's microclimate or historic features or soundscape or view shed or sensitive habitat or soils, you know, all of the types of analysis that one would do. And oftentimes you can put those on trace paper and put them one over the other and generate overall patterns which drive, you know, um, development feasibilities or what we would call like a synthetic analysis, which are multiple types of analysis, one put on top of the other, which starts to generate boundaries of, you know, this area would be good for house site and these areas not. These areas might be good for access ways and these areas not. So that's that's a, a really simplified description of, of let's say the the hard and fast process that we we use in our office. I'm always intrigued by the various elements of how the business processes for different people work. Thank you for taking the time to walk me through that, and I'm sure that some of the listeners will find that familiar with their own work and what they do. I could probably pick your brain about those processes and designs for quite some time. But what I'd like to move to is to talk with you about your forthcoming book and what you've included in that and a lot of the research that you've done to develop that book and in the work that you're doing because that's something that one of the local permaculture practitioners said that he loves about your Facebook page because of all the information that you're always putting up there and the new ideas that you're generating all the time. Mm-hmm. If you could let us know just about the book, and then we can talk about the research. Sure. Well, the the book is called The Resilient Farm and Homestead. It's being published by Chelsea Green Press. It's being printed almost as we speak. It should ship from the printer at the end of May. And it's really a compilation of everything we've learned. Not everything, but what could fit into a book and, and what's explainable in book form, which is a bit about what we've learned here for the most part, on this site for the last, <laughs> the last 10 years, uh, our whole system's research farm, which is 10 acres in central Vermont. So it's a cold climate case study of what works and what seems to not work so well in creating a highly resilient home and small farm, which will not only um, be less vulnerable to changes in the Earth's climate, to changes in the cost of resources, or changes in the, you know, the toxicity of the air and water, 
but could actually um, benefit from these changes and, and almost be improved in its performance by the changes that the world is experiencing. So the book is is really just a, a firsthand account of, of the systems, both built and biological, you know, what species we're using, what ways of growing foods and medicine, and also ways of building structures and, and heating structures. There's, since we're in a, a very cold climate as far as the world is concerned, where people really inhabit the world, heating systems, for instance, are, are serious in, you know, northern New England. And uh, we've pushed the boundaries to a large extent on wood heating and what we can get out of a cord of wood. We heat all of our domestic water in a, in a 1,500 square foot home on about a cord and a half of, of wood a year and have some very high performing heating systems. You get into detail about that. That's something that's not really in, in any book as far as I've found. A lot about earthworks and, and creating water security and drought proofing a landscape and a lot about actually growing in inundated lands because half of our property is the water tables at the surface for most of the year. So it's a very challenging situation to grow in essentially a perched wetland. And a lot of cold climate, mountainous, hilly lands are like that. And there's not nearly enough strategy shared about how to, how to work with those systems. Uh, and there's you know, a dozen other topics focused on in the book. There's a table of contents on our website for the book. Uh, but I think it, it'll be a really valuable addition to the ecological design, resilience, permaculture literature, in that also it, it has a lot of concepts and a lot of principles and strategies that have emerged from hands-on work, but it's totally based in an actual site and how it's working. There's theory, but it's always coupled with the practical, with the actual. So I think the fact that it's based in a specific site with specific lessons learned on that site um, makes it really useful for anyone who wants to create a, a permaculture system, you know, in reality for themselves. With all the research that you've done over the last 10 years and getting things running and leading in a way towards the culmination with the publication of this book in your ongoing process, what have been some of your most telling moments, like those moments where you really learned something, whether it was a success or a failure? through trying to develop solutions in this environment? There's a variety. I mean, one of the ones that comes to mind is building ponds. You know, the, the first thing I realized, I thought I wanted to do on the property was plant an orchard. And so I went to dig holes, you know, about a year and a half, two years after getting here. Went down to the what I knew was the sunniest area of the property. And I think I was hyper-focused on sun, solar access, and microclimates. Um, when I got here... And when I started design work and site development and not nearly tuned in enough to the water, let's say, in the ground and, and the water movement across the ground, so I had identified an area that has the longest day, the sunniest spot on the property, basically, or, or what was. Then went down there, dug a bunch of holes to plant an apple and pear orchard, came back the next day to plant the trees, and they were all filled with water, all of the holes. And I didn't know a whole lot about growing trees then. But I knew enough to know, well, this isn't going to be a very good situation for these trees. And so that was the beginning of understanding that that whole area actually really wanted to be a pond. You know, a big hole filled with water being much more useful than a lot of little holes filled with water and, you know, dead plants. So we, you know, actually within the six months of that period, at that time, dug a large pond down there, our lowest large pond. That was one realization, which just came through starting to dig. And starting to realize, you know, where the water settles in the landscape and what what to do with that. You know, that if you have a very inundated wet area, there's often, there's kind of a, a very challenging situation if water is, if land is just sopping wet, but it's not actually full of water, it's not a hole full of water, or it's not a mound. If it's kind of in the in-between, it's like mesic wet field, it's very limiting as to what you can grow there uh, in like a wetland condition versus dig it out and create an open water system, true pond type of situation or a paddy situation, although paddies are actually very challenging in wetlands, despite what a lot of people would think intuitively, or versus, you know, making mounds in wet areas. Swale mound systems are emerging as, you know, the top two or three, uh, maybe the top, the most important strategy that we've come across here. You know, not just because their ability to slow spread and sink water in dry areas of the site, 
but actually for their ability to grow a wide assortment of plants and pasture in very wet areas, in areas where the water table is very high. So there's this, there's a general misconception that swales are, are most needed where where the land's arid and, and you need to you know stop and catch all the water. That's true, but they're just as useful in inundated areas. And that's one aspect we've come across, which is very powerful, that you know, we need the swales in our inundated, low-sloping low, land, low sloping fields where the water table's at the surface for most of the year as much as we do in the dry areas. In some ways, more. The plants will grow in the dry areas. They'll just grow really slowly. But in the really inundated areas, they won't just not grow, you know, or grow slowly. They'll die because of wet feet. So those... And doing like hugel culture or hugel mounds, you're just mounding in wet areas. Um, you know, it's nothing new. There's large areas of, of wetland and cold climates across the world where people have realized they need to build up on mounds, but you just don't see a lot of it. You know, a lot of what we're, we're doing here, I have never seen examples of anywhere else. I mean, it's starting to over the years, but for instance, when we do tours and people the rice paddies, some people said, "Well, how'd you know? You know, how'd you know to do rice paddies? Where'd you see rice paddies around here?" I haven't. I hadn't, and I still haven't. I've never seen any other uh, terraced rice paddies until the last year. But I hadn't when I when I dug these. I'd seen photos, but you know, we we have so few references to work from. We have to really get creative. I mean, and we have to travel too, because none of, nothing, very little is new under the sun, but. It's very few diverse land use systems, cropping systems to see in North America. That's for sure. So, so the swale mounds are, I think, one of the, the primary strategies that we've emerged as very important through the work here. That's a big one. When you say that you were heating your home 1,500 square feet with um, your domestic hot water, with a cord and a half of wood, does that also include like heating the home itself, or is that just the water? Yes, the heating system that I'm talking about is absolutely heating the entire 1,500 square feet of space plus the domestic water, which are the two primary heat needs in a, in a cold climate. Also, we get our, our baking and actual cooking function on that stove as well. So we just have a really high-performance wood cook stove, and it does the four most crucial functions that you need from heat in a home, space heating, water heating, cooking, baking. So those four functions. And also another key function, which people don't often recognize enough in cold climate, which is crucial, just as crucial as staying warm, actually, or short or right thereafter, is keeping a home dry. It's actually drying a home because in a cold, wet climate, well-inflated homes often rot from the inside out. So a heating system is crucial to keep the home dry and healthy, the air quality healthy. So this is also, you know, every wood stove in a home is, is, a, is a drying a drying machine for the home, that's crucial. So this does all five of those crucial functions on a cord to two cords. Before we hooked up the domestic water system, we're heating and cooking and baking and drying a cord of wood, and then the water sucks down another 50% to heat our hot water. But we're able to get by comfortably with two people, um, call it two cords of wood for an entire year, and if we go away, you know, on a vacation or a trip, um, or in the swing season is actually when we'll use some propane because we're not running the wood stove and if we want hot water for a shower, we don't have solar hooked up yet in this building. We'll use, call it five to 10 gallons of, of oil. There's a backup furnace the insurance company made us install. Five to 10 gallons of oil, two cords of, of wood grown on the site, and maybe 30 to 40 gallons of propane, which we cook on in the summer uh, and heat some hot water with in the summer for a whole year. So from an economic standpoint, it's pretty low cost of living. You know, we essentially grow the wood for free and then spend, call it 50 gallons of propane and oil. And that's, you know, only until we get a little solar system in. So it's very, very low cost of, of living, very, very economical way to live. But it's also what interests me most is that it's so resilient. It's so non-vulnerable to the power going out or to price spike. You know, this system keeps running whether the power is out for a minute or for a month. As long as we can cut some wood and split some wood, we have heat, hot water, cooking, baking needs covered. So it's a totally independent, highly self-reliant and resilient way 
to uh, power your home, never mind it's the cheapest way to do it, both in the near term and, and certainly, obviously, in the long term. It's fascinating to me because I live in a home with an oil furnace and my wife and I are trying to find a solution to limit the use of that here in Pennsylvania. We're in about a zone six for the USD hardiness zone. Um, what zone are you in, just for reference? We're generally zone five, but traditionally have been zone four. So we'll see we'll see negative twenty Fahrenheit. That's without wind chill every year, basically. Our warmest winter we saw negative eighteen. And then we've seen down to negative twenty six. We're zone four trending towards five. But you know, that's only one aspect of our climate obviously. It tends to be cold, you know, zero to twenty degrees for weeks at a time when we have a nice solid stretch of winter weather. So that's when a lot of wood or heating oil will get sucked down in homes around northern England is when you have these long cold stretches. And we'll have we'll have those pretty consistently. So, you know, a typical home around us, for instance, say they heat with wood, they'll burn four to five cords a year and they'll also use at least a couple hundred to four hundred gallons of oil as well just when they're not feeding the stove, keeping up with it, because very few homes have only wood nowadays in Vermont. We're heating 1,500 square feet with like 10 to 15% of the energy uh, required to heat your average structure of this size. So it's pretty amazing the gains you can see. And obviously, this is a very well-inflated building. You know, you can't just do that with any building. But if you're able to put something together that's really sensible from scratch, the efficiency and effectiveness that you can achieve is pretty amazing. It's also a lot less work. I mean, processing two cords of wood, moving two cords of wood, is uh, a lot less work than five or six cords. I mean, a cord of wood is 4,000 pounds in general. And if you got to move it at least a couple times, even if you're smart about it. So if you think about how many tens of thousands of pounds you're moving every year when you heat with wood, there's a multiplier there. So the less the less you need, the better. And I just think of my friends who heat with pellet stoves and the, the pallets and pallets of pellets they get every year and having to move those to a place where they're going to be convenient or to get them into the hopper for the stove and the gains you can have from those efficiencies. We often have clients ask us about putting a pellet stove in. I think pellets are crazy because, you know, you want to heat with biomass and not oil, but pellets are processed with oil at every step, and then it's still a bought product. So as soon as you need a bought product and you can't harvest it, it's not, and it's not on your own site, at least locally, and process it locally with minimal technology, it's still very vulnerable to the host of fragilities that are inherent you know, in the world, especially nowadays. So it, it, it doesn't make much sense, I think, if you really are in a place that heat is a very important function. I think we still haven't invented a better wood storage approach than cutting trees down and cutting them up and splitting them and putting them under cover to dry. Maybe it's just we're not that smart as human beings, or we're certainly very clever, but that's one of the most effective ways to store energy we figured out, as well as maybe putting up hay in a barn. As we start to get complex and, and add complicatedness into the system, we just bring in untold amount of vulnerability and also just lack of economy lack of reliability. A huge part of what we're doing here is trying to simplify systems and have very bomb-proof, utterly dependable, simple systems. We'll use technologies like excavators and electric fencing to establish systems, but where at all possible, we're trying to not depend on those systems for maintenance. So there's a very clear line, a very clear distinguishing threshold between what we use for systems establishment versus what we'll use for system maintenance. Excavator is a great example. Fantastic to use to establish a system. You want to build a system that you need an excavator to maintain or a tractor? Certainly not, if you can help it. Those maintenance inputs are the thing I think that's going to come to really bite us in the ass and, and do tend to really take systems down. I mean, you think about any type of tractor dependent farming. It doesn't just depend on the oil to run the tractor. It'd be easy. You can store up a bunch of oil. But there's, you know, a thousand parts that are needed to make a tractor run. If you can't get one of those parts, which depends on the global flow of resources, that tractor's not running. Or even if it's a hundred parts, but it, it's more, it's hundreds of parts. And most of those parts you can't just make 
on site and have a hard time even making locally, especially with each passing year, the complexity of these systems goes up. The vulnerability of them also goes up. So there's a, there's a clear importance there between site establishment and site maintenance. What you mentioned there, I also think, speaks to the idea of needing to have a broad skill set when moving forward with this, because as you mentioned, it's being able to know how much wood you're going to need. Well, also, well, what trees on my site are the best to select? How do I fell them? What's the best way to split them? How do I store them? Where does that storage area need to be located so that it's convenient? And as you simplify these systems, the specialization that we have currently in society is almost a function of the complexity because we become one of those pieces of that machine. But then as we simplify, then we ourselves need to have, if you will, a more complex skill set to be able to handle all the challenges that could arise. Or if we don't know how to do it, then to be in a community where we know someone who does. Yeah, absolutely. A great example is how most people's food is produced today is product of that specialization. And in the short term, we can make a massive amount of a massive quantity of food that way, very low quality, but, um, you know, we don't understand its limitations until, you know, you can't get a part or the resources are expensive. You know, there's there's an interesting relationship between efficiency and resilience. And oftentimes the most efficient system is not the most resilient. And the most resilient systems, which is what we're really hyper-focused on, are not necessarily the most efficient. They're just least vulnerable to breakdowns. And if you look at a, most modern farms, one of the primary limiting factors is keeping the machines going. And so many farmers essentially become default mechanics trying to constantly keep a machine running. And when the machine blows down, which is often, you know, the whole system, the whole domino of that effect of that system kicks into gear in a negative way. You know, that's not just a vulnerability that's terrible to depend upon, but it's really not enjoyable. I mean, I, I fix machines. I wish I had a mechanic on site sometimes. Our site establishment I'm into a lot of technology and appreciate its power. You know, I have to fix my mini excavator or uh, when I can, <laughs> not bringing out that help, or just fix my truck, tractor, even my garden way cart. That's not nearly as fun as just hauling mulch with a bucket. You know, keeping going, getting in the flow and staying in the flow with a, a task. You know, when, when a piece of technology breaks down, breaks the entire flow of a day or sometimes a week or a whole project. And it's, it's really low quality work, I think, when you have to deal with those systems. So, and that's, that's another thing I think that's emerged from our work here. Uh, our experimentation is, is what's quality work? Not just trying to save labor, but actually keep the quality of work, the type of work we're doing, really high quality. I use scything as a great example of that. Scything you could view scything as pretty labor intensive, but you can scythe for four hours a day and feel invigorated by it. Actually, everybody improved by it. Whereas if you're digging holes for four hours a day, you know, that's pretty erosive for the most part to the body. It's not something that's really improving your health. I mean, depending what you're digging in, but so it's not just a quantity of work. There's a quality of work aspect as well. I should mention there's about 75 strategies and principles in, in our book that'll be out soon that hit on a lot of these findings that we've come across through being here. So that quality of work versus quantity is one of them. Do you have a few more of those principles and strategies you'd care to share with us as we bring this interview to a close? One of them, as I'm out here moving some coffee bags, which we free cycle, dumpster dive locally, if you're walking somewhere, make sure you're carrying something because chances are something needs to be moved on the property. And if you're walking empty-handed, there's something, especially if you're walking from zone one to your outer zones, there's something, usually fertility or mulch or genetics plants, that wants to go from zone one to two, three, four, five. That's connected with another principle, which is that we're always extending fertility from zone one to zone two, three, four, five, right? Because the people and the animals tend to hole up and reside in zone one a lot, so that's where the fertility is produced. So that's where we, if we dumpster dive mulch or wood chips or buy compost or find any types of horse manure or whatever it is locally, it comes in zone one because that's where access is. There's a principle there. If you're moving from zone one to outer zones, you know, be carrying something with you. 
which is connected with another principle, which is that moving things is entropy. Anytime you want to move, minimize how many, how much stuff you move around, because when you're moving something, it's not truly a regenerative action. It may be necessary. You know, we have to mulch our trees in zone three or four. They're just not going to grow. We have really poor soil. But that's when we're moving and I'm carrying mulch with buckets or a wheelbarrow, that's not nearly as regenerative of an action as I could do as, let's say, broadcasting seed or actually putting a tree in the ground or urinating at the base of a tree. You know, that's actual regenerative action directly. So we want to minimize. You know, the best farm and homestead is one, in, at least in part, in which you're moving as little things around as possible. You know, that's a commonality among uh, systems that are optimized unless the quantity of materials you're moving is deliberately lowered. Those are a few of them. They're all connected, as, as you get a sense of. And it's interesting to see, where are you taking notes for the next book? Because there's so much really actually that's not in this book, which we continue to learn. Because also the book was done right, writ, being written actually almost a year ago now. And just in the last year, there's, you know, a couple chapters of pretty useful stuff. So I guess, even though I don't like writing books, I may have to keep updating it, keep sharing what we actually know about these systems. But I guess that's a, an exciting prospect as well. I should have you call Peter Bain with your 75 principles and strategies, and the two of you could talk about using the pattern language that he was developing in his most recent book and combine them together into a new, like, homestead pattern language for the permaculture community and, well, also the broader community. Yeah, that's a good idea. There's a lot of you know, pattern languages out there, kind of in some ways using that same language that Christopher Alexander developed. And I, I would add that, you know, I think it's okay for there being multiple different versions of these patterns out there, because I actually think there's a high degree of variation between sites and between climates. And while there's a lot of common principles you can use across climates and sites, all of us need to become our own expert at our own site, because even, let's say, right here versus across this valley, I'm looking across the valley to the to the east-facing side of this valley, it's totally different. The climate's very different. The soils are different. The solutions are not the same. There's some commonalities, but I think there's a tendency to oversimplify, you know, what works. You know, this works. Do this. Well, it may work on your site. It may not. You know, it may work with your animals. It may work with... It may not. You know, there's so many generalizations made in the permaculture world about, you know, this animal will do this or this plant will do this. And uh, we found, and this is what somewhat the book goes into, you know, that some of that's true for here, for us at this time, at this stage of site development, and some of it's not true. Especially with our work with animals, we see a lot of these generalizations just, just not hold up. You know, this breed does this or this breed does this, you know. As I think I've heard Penny Livingston say and other folks say, you know, it depends. The answer, someone asks you a question about, you know, how does this work or this work, it's more often than not, well, it depends. It depends on all the other variables at play because they're multifold. And if we don't stay put in a landscape for decades or hopefully multiple generations, we won't get very good at understanding those specifics that are very rooted in the place we are and get good at them, you know, get elegant at, at working in synergy with those forces. Uh, thank you for that. It's one of the things that was reinforced in me over and over again was that every site is unique. And as you say, though, we can make generalizations. The discovery of that site and what does and doesn't work is left up to every designer with each site and each design that emerges. Yeah, and that's really exciting. It's ultimately empowering, right? Because it, it says inherently you can't find another expert. I mean, you can get people to help you you're going to have to be the expert. There's just no one else, I mean, unless they're living there with you. Everyone else is just inherently limited. We, we think of that with our, with our clients. Ultimately, we, at some point, there comes a time to tell them, look, we can guide you, we can be a facilitator, but you, you know, you're going to have to be the expert at this system because I'm not here every day. <laughs> you know, maybe I'll be here 10 times total or whatever it is. But, you know, the person residing on the site needs to be expert. It's terribly empowering in reality. It's a good thing to be our own best advisor. It's exciting stuff. Though I could end on that thought, is there anything else you would like to add to this conversation? You know, I would just uh, emphasize to folks that 
the, the need to get started, you know, the need to, to be doing. And even if you don't have a piece of land, which I know a lot of people don't, land's hard to come by. Beg, borrow, and steal, or, you know, do everything within reason that you can to at least access a patch of the earth to start teaching yourself. Because books, literature, videos, you know, other people's ideas, they're all great, but they're inherently limiting. And you know, things we really need to learn most, we're going to, I think we have to learn directly, you know, through direct contact between ourselves and, this, and that living world that we reside in. And, and that's where we're really get far as a species too, I think, is if you know, there's millions of people engaged in that and there's very few you know, priests, as it were, you know, people translating for everyone else. You know, we, we kind of all have to be our own priests if you want to use that analogy. It's a lot more of a horizontal structure, right, than a, than a vertical hierarchy of the experts passing things down. So the need to get started and actually work with these systems, I think, is crucial. And People grouping up together to buy land in groups or to somehow access land via trades with people that do have land because lots of people have more land than they can possibly deal with. That's very common. I have no easy answers about how to do that, but I know it's crucial. And I think there's a lot of people that could form groups to, to access, buy, or, or somehow rent land to make that happen for themselves or, or get on land and, and show people what you can do and you know, they might be interested in getting you some of that land or somehow arranging for a long-term lease because they realize, well, you know, you can bring value to that land. And we work with a lot of people who have far more land than they'll ever be able to utilize well. And there's a lot of people who are ready to utilize land, but those two dots need to be connected. And even for those people who are still searching for land, until they find those 500 or 5 acres, they can also just start with a 5-gallon pot on a patio and build their own tomato guild and see how these things start to work. Yeah, absolutely. There's a world of systems you can make on a balcony if you're willing to just get creative and get some seeds and start putting these systems together. Seeds, water, and soil, it, it doesn't take a whole lot of inaccessible resources, but the possibilities are really exciting. So I look forward to you know the end of my life or you know maybe, maybe it'll be my kid's lifetime to looking out at the millions of people who are kind of manifesting themselves in that way. Because right now, I think we're just maybe coming out of the dark ages of all this stuff. And um, that's a good thing. You know, I mean, it's not a, a great thing to realize, but it's actually very good news because it points to what might be possible for the world and for the human species and the rest of the living community that we, we share this place with. And we have all kinds of people all over the world such as yourself, sharing their stories and sharing this information so that more people have access to it. And I thank you for it and for this conversation. Yeah, thanks for uh, giving me a ring. I'm glad to keep spreading the word. And I'll appreciate sharing this with the listeners, but as I've had you for a while, I'd like to return you to your land so you can do this work without me in your ear. So please have a good day, sir, and thank you for joining me. Okay, thanks, Scott. We'll be in touch. And that was Ben Falk. If you'd like to learn more about him, or from him, go to his website, wholesystemsdesign.com. You'll also find him on YouTube and Facebook with plenty of functional information. Some of my big takeaways from this interview was the reinforcement of personal experience, education, and the need to become your own expert. That reminded me of the interview with Stephen Herod Buner, in that we need to find our own knowledge and work with what we value. We can also share knowledge and information by going down our own road. Find what it is that you want to do, and do it if you can, and find out what's important. From a more design-focused perspective, there were two points he raised that caught my attention enough to write them down twice. Once during the interview, and then again while I was editing the audio. The first was of site features versus site processes. I think of this in the way that principles inform design, which inform technique. We start from the very general, which then leads to the more specific, not the other way around. Saying, I want an orchard, could result in us trying to fit something that doesn't work for a site onto it, leading for more work. Ultimately, it's something that's not appropriate. But if you say something like, I want to grow my own fruit, and then work through the design process, you can be led to discover what naturally fits the area you're working with. 
The second of these ideas was system establishment versus system maintenance. I've been mentally working through the ideas of what a permaculture society would look like, thanks to a note that Rob Meyer left on the Facebook page, and to that end, I'm considering energy inputs versus outputs in a way similar to Odom's models in environment, power, and society. That has me considering where the best places are to invest our current resources. Because of that, I think that system establishment is one of those places where it seems like the long-term benefits repay the initial inputs many times over. We could spend 20 years building a system in a completely renewable and sustainable way with simply human energy. But if we still rely on numerous external inputs, such as going to a store to get food or buying things that are shipped in from a long ways away, is that really any better than if we use those non-renewable and possibly even damaging resources up front to get things going? Are we better to front load the system and then repair and reap the benefits from it over the long term? I can't say that I have answers to this, especially when I start thinking about energy and something like nuclear or natural gas versus coal, of what is a lesser evil and how can we bridge between where we are and where we want to go. But I do see a role for technology in everything that we do, even if those metrics still aren't clear. As with everything, it depends on your situation, so plan and prepare accordingly. We'll find our way out of this by working together and doing the best we can. If after listening to this episode you have more questions, please let me know. You can also leave a comment in the show notes for this episode or send me a message on Twitter where I am at PermacultureCST or through the Facebook page, facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast. Or there's always the old-fashioned ways of email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com or by phone, 717-827-6266. Next week, on June 4th, is the episode with Wayne Herring, talking about his work over the last six years of starting a sustainable family farm. After that, on June 11th, is Nathan Mulcahy of World Stove. We talk about his work to develop and distribute pyrolytic stoves that not only cook food efficiently, but also produce biochar to aid replenishing the soil. And for those of you interested in the online PDC+, as of this moment, there are nine seats left in the course, and public registration opens up on June 1st. I'll let you know how many seats are available and share the link with you then. Until the next time, take care of the earth, yourself, and each other. Oh, and here's the legal. The Permaculture Podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivative Works License. That means you can feel free to share it with whoever you like, but make sure you tell them where you got it, and don't sell it or change it.